Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. And Christian, it is week two for our Nicolas Cage Blend of the Month. It's the Age of Cage, continuing on here at Cinema Drip. How you feeling, Christian? Are you feeling like, you know, crazy Nicolas Cage? Sad Nicolas Cage? Uh, on the Nicolas Cage spectrum, where are your emotions today? I'm in pain in Nicolas Cage. Mm, a common theme throughout his movies, for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to hear that, Christian. Leaving Las Vegas and its discussion, the discussion around it surely will not help that, <laughs> as this is not a very cheerful movie. But I'm looking forward to discussing it either way, as I've gotten to cross the movie off of my watch list, seeing the movie that won Nick Cage his Oscar. So I'm looking forward to our discussion, of course. I did want to make one quick mention. Of course, we are recording this episode shortly after the release of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. This show is focused on the movies we're covering in our blends of the month, but it is always fun to talk about our feelings on some recent releases. So, Christian, we've obviously talked a lot about this, but uh, how'd you feel? Share with the listeners your thoughts and feelings on this movie. It's entertaining. The the script is 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 god awful. <laughs> so it's it you know, but people don't really care about that when it comes to a Marvel movie necessarily. So you I, I think most people are probably gonna go in there and have a good time. I would say so. And I think our feelings actually aren't too far apart in that I very much enjoyed the movie and I did not like the script particularly well either but i think i just enjoyed it a little bit more (laughs) i really enjoyed the sam raimi of it all so i am curious to see some of the reactions i know in talking with our buddies keenan and case and collar at the color at the hollywood week podcast that keenan is like over the moon for messages and i'm so over it (laughs) wow christian i am not over having friends so shout out to the guys at the hollywood week podcast we love talking movies with you oh wait morning and it's like 160 mixed missed messages between you and keenan with Kaysen saying like three things those are the, those are the like, best moment, moments me and keenan just I'm not shooting going, the breeze i'm not gonna scroll back up to see what i missed enough about our personal lives christian it's time to talk nicholas cage because of course we are looking at leaving las vegas this week a movie that neither of us had seen before from my recollections in our at the end of our discussion last week In general, Christian, how are you feeling going into this movie? I didn't know a ton about it. I did know it won him an Oscar, obviously, and that it was not a particularly good time at the movies, but you even warned me (laughs) yourself when we, you actually shared your DVD from the library with me, so shout out to the LA County Library for sponsoring this episode, not actually, but you did warn me that it was quite a sad time, (laughs) so... How are you feeling going into the movie, Christian? Any any concerns, or were you ready for whatever sad depths Nick Cage plumbed to? Uh, I, I, I don't know. It, I wasn't, like, I knew it was going to be a sad time, and then it was a sad time. So I guess my expectations were met. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. That's great. Um, I think it's fun to sort of trace, as we're looking at Nick Cage throughout this month, to quickly trace where he had been. So, of course, we talked about Raising Arizona last week, and that, along with Moonstruck, were his two big breakthrough movies in the year 1987. Moonstruck was a huge hit, got nominated for a bunch of Oscars, and he was nominated for a Golden Globe for his performance, with Roger Ebert saying he was worthy of an Oscar, although that was a review later in life. And then... 
As he was blowing up, his career entered a minor downturn through the rest of the 80s and into the 90s, where the movies he was making were not as successful. He wasn't always choosing bad projects, like he did work with David Lynch, for example, making the movie Wild at Heart with Laura Dern, but a lot of times these movies wouldn't connect with an audience or would be poorly reviewed. And so he is in a slump before a huge upturn in the mid-90s started by leaving Las Vegas, because, of course, it did win him an Oscar. We've mentioned that a bunch of times already, of course. And then he also made a string of commercially successful and sometimes critically loved action movies. So the 90s are a big period for Cage, as he's kind of entering this big triple-A list movie star period. I feel like most people in our generation, like early to mid-20s, recognize him for what comes after this. Movies like National Treasure and Ghost Rider, you know, these big giant movies that he made in the 2000s after this. So are you familiar much with this period of his career, Christian, the, at least the 90s or even more specifically the mid-90s? I am not. I think I'm most familiar with 2000s Nicolas Cage. Which makes total sense. That's probably where I'm most familiar as well because we were obviously not able to watch these movies as we were either in the process of being born <laughs> or being babies. So it is fun to return to these movies later on. And, of course, we'll mention the quick details now about Leaving Las Vegas, but directed by Mike Figgis, who is not a name I feel that most people outside of, obviously, like cinephile film fan circles would recognize. This is probably the peak of his career, unfortunately, because he did get nominated for an Oscar for directing and writing this movie, and he has continued to work somewhat steadily through, you know, to the present day, but... Not many of his movies, I mean, I, I'll just come out and say it, I don't recognize any of his movies that he's made, except for a movie called Time Code, which is more known as a failed experiment. It's uh, four different storylines, all shot in one take, and each of them is playing out on the screen at the same time in Maybe four, he was trying uh, four corners. He was going for it. <laughs> he was absolutely going for it. But he's unfortunately not someone that I am super familiar with. This is probably the height of his career. Uh, but obviously, good for him in terms of making this movie with Cage. And of course, Elizabeth Shue is the co-star of this movie who was also nominated for an Oscar. Big moment for her, of course, because she was more known for her family roles that she was that she made growing up. Her first movie, or second movie, but first major movie, was The Karate Kid, where she was... I, I haven't actually seen The Karate Kid, Christian, but I think she was the girlfriend for The Karate Kid. Have you? Can you confirm or deny? <laughs> I've seen five minutes of Jaden Smith ah. in the new one. All right, Karate Kid blend of the month. <laughs> I, I, I did not grow up with the Karate Kid, and I Neither know that I. people like Cobra Kai. I have seen none of Cobra Kai. <laughs> Same, yeah. So maybe that's in store for us in the future. But she also was in Adventures in Babysitting, which I know was a well-liked movie at the time. And I then don't know what that is. Well, I've heard good things about it. And sure. then she took over as the role of Marty McFly's girlfriend in Back to the Future's Part 2 and 3. So I've seen no Back to the Future. Ah, I, I really like the first one. It's the only one that I've seen, but I'm a fan there. So she is becoming a bigger deal in Hollywood through the mid to late 80s and into the 90s. Uh, again, don't know a ton about the movie, all of the movies that she's making at this time, but 95 is a big moment for her as she makes a movie with Steven Soderbergh, although he wasn't quite Steven Soderbergh in the, by the mid 90s, and now leaving Las Vegas, which gets her an Oscar nomination. So this movie is a huge moment for everybody involved with it for the most part, because 
everybody, all, all three of those major players that I'm mentioning get nominated for Oscars for their work. It sparks a career resurgence for Cage, kind of mints Elizabeth Shue as an A-list star, and again, helps propel Mike Figgis to more mainstream audiences. And although it didn't really last for him, Cage, of course, became... Okay. <laughs> it was still Nicholas Cage. No, 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 no. You know what's weird about everything you've just said? Tell me. We are talking about directors whose crowning achievement is being remembered for a movie that Nicolas Cage won an Oscar for and yes. not the movie itself. Or, or like, and when I say B tier, I'm going to say, I don't mean B in quality, but B as in lesser known, lesser known actors within a certain time span of the late 80s and 90s who are being remembered right now for acting adjacent to Nicolas Cage. Are you saying that Elizabeth Shue is a B-list actor, Christian? <laughs> Lesser known, absolutely. What? I know See, that's... people... No, 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 no. People are not walking around here saying, hey, you remember how good Elizabeth Shue was in her Oscar-dominated performance in Leaving Las Vegas? So that, okay, that's, that's fair. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's legitimately... Everything you said right now is fascinating because... Some of the actors that we have today, tomorrow, might just be gone. I mean, it's true. And Elizabeth Shue is still acting. She was in season one of The Boys, for all of you The Boys fans I out there. her part in The Boys. Yeah, she's really good. And, and of course, her time on the A-list did not last forever. But I will say, to a certain generation, this period of her career is fondly remembered. Like, I... <laughs> I'm pretty sure my dad, listener of this show, hi dad, you're getting another shout out. I'm pretty sure at one point he told me that he like maybe had a crush on her, <laughs> like the early career. He was like a fan of her at this at this time <laughs> when he was in high school and, and college. So again, it's it's because of our age where we are not as familiar with the peak of her career. But Elizabeth Shue is still a relatively known quantity, I would say, and although she is not known as being a leading lady anymore. But I guess it is fair that you're right to say... This wins Nicolas Cage an Oscar, and yet it's probably in, in what, the second or third tier of movies that come to people's mind when they think of him. Because he's more known for those big blockbusters like National Treasure, like The Rock, Con Air. like Con Air, Face like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I mean, even yeah. The Croods, yeah. So he's more known for some of this triple A-list work that he's been doing, or even his, like, direct-to-video period. That's what people how they think of him these days, even if they don't and, know the movies. And Mike Figgis right now is being remembered for a third-tier Nicolas Cage movie. Right. And obviously, it's a shame because he the made... The entertainment career is is a cruel mistress. It absolutely is. And Mike Figgis, this was not his first movie. It was not his last. And yet, it's probably one of his most recognizable, partially because of the Oscar attention, of course. The Oscars... Sometimes, you know, when movies get nominated, they just are lost to time. And there's, it's always fun to look back at ceremonies from like 10 to 15 years ago, or maybe not that long, even five to 10 years ago, where you remember watching the ceremony and you think, oh my gosh, I don't remember that movie at all. <laughs> I didn't see that movie. And it, it's funny to think about that. So sometimes that fate does befall these Oscar nominated movies. And sometimes it's Which how is why we... why the Oscars are important. Right. Because, of course, it's sometimes it is how we remember these people in their careers. It at least gives us a moment to center the discussion around. Because I want you to ask me the question, but I will say uh, this is not a bad movie. Not at all. 
Not at all. And and we'll get into our, our review shortly, Christian, so we can share our full enumerated thoughts on leaving Las Vegas. So a couple quick notes on it before we get into our thoughts. But number one, adapted from the book Leaving Las Vegas by the author John O'Brien, who in a really tragic story wrote this semi-autobiographically and died by suicide shortly after selling the rights to the book. So Figgis did make the movie partially as a memorial to O'Brien and to his uh, all-too-short life. And this ultimately was made on a very small budget. Um, Wikipedia estimates somewhere between 3 and a half to $4 million, but was a huge success, pulling in about $50 million at the global box office, so more than 10 times what it was made for and on its way to Oscar attention. And I will say, knowing that now, I am kind of surprised having seen this movie and, and we'll get into some of those reasons. Can you just imagine like Saturday midday pulling up to the movie theater thinking, I'm going to watch Leaving Las Vegas right now. Well, I mean, I totally can because we did we did that with movies all the time. Like we went to see Blue Bayou at the theater on like a Thursday. And we're like, ah, Thursday afternoon, a great time to go see a really hard hitting <laughs> drama the about a person story. who might be deported. Yeah, yeah that's that's well, <laughs> that's true. But we're crazy. We are crazy. It, it's, it's the kind of thing that I can totally see myself doing, but absolutely uh, strange to think about more normal people doing this in their in their free time. And yet, different time in Hollywood. Uh, a drama like this could make $50 million, and it was a, a huge success. Anyway, Christian, let's get into our review here of Leaving Las Vegas. For my opening question for you, I actually want to quickly mention the plot, just in case there's anybody who did not get a chance to see the movie. It follows Nicolas Cage as uh, a Hollywood screenwriter who has lost his job, lost his family, all due to his struggle with alcoholism. And so he makes a determination that he's going to move to Las Vegas and drink himself to death. After he moves out there, he meets a woman named Sarah, who is working as a prostitute, and the two of them form a connection as she tries to help him live out the rest of his days, and he tries to help her where he can, and these two bond and begin a relationship so i think a very key aspect to this movie is just how did cage's performance age because of course he is portraying an alcoholic he is portraying addiction which can be hit or miss and actors of all uh skill levels all talents have attempted performances like these before sometimes to great acclaim and sometimes to critical derision so christian while we open up our discussion here about the movie, I am just curious. I want to start with Nicolas Cage. This is Nick Cage month. What did you think of, of his portrayal of alcoholism? Did you find it compelling or was it distracting? It was compelling because he makes the decision to go slightly, not over the top, but to go slightly past where I think another actor would take it. And the decision is aided by the character having acknowledged he's an alcoholic. So this is not a man who is in denial of alcoholism. This is not a man who is trying to get better. This is not a man who has any delusions. He is a man who is resigned to say, I want to drink myself to death. And so in not the... It, he's not outlandish, but in, in a little showier, I guess, than, than how a different actor might portray this alcoholism, he does it just enough to where we go, oh, yeah, no, this man has given up. And this isn't showiness. This is just 
if I'm going to drink myself to death, I might as well keep drinking. And I think it fits. Is it nice to watch? No. But it is a decision that I respected he took. I am pretty much 100% with you on that assessment of the performance. I think he makes a lot of you know, capital C choices here in, in trying to accurately portray an alcoholic. And yet it feels like a very realistic and empathetic portrayal of somebody struggling through an addiction to alcohol. And you think of Nicolas Cage, and often we think about him, you know, blowing his top or going crazy or screaming and all of those heightened moments that he's given us in different movies, especially the ones that came after this, the ones that are more popular that you and I have seen, that we know our friends in our age range have seen too. That's kind of what he's known for. And yet in the movie where he wins an Oscar playing an alcoholic, I wouldn't say it's subdued, but I am with you and that it's not necessarily showy. And he is giving us a, a full range of even per, not personas, but um, I guess a full range of sides to this this man named Ben is Ben Sanderson's the character's name and we see Ben when he is low and he is he's got the shakes he's barely holding it together he is almost crawling to the fridge looking for a bottle to drink from and we see him when he's charming and trying to hit on women which is obviously it's kind of gross to watch but it's not presented in a way where it makes him seem cool we just see this more confident side of him and we see him in between where he's just sort of in a stupor a little bit disengaged but still there and still sitting across the table from sarah and so it's it's such a it's such an interesting performance and not necessarily what i was expecting from him and i think that's why it connected with me so much it's also very, it's very easy to sympathize with the individual, similar to what you're saying. And him, him and Shu do play off of each other very well. I think they're in complete sync with what the other is trying to do. Both are, are kind of going out to the audience with their performances. They are acting towards the back row it, in, a, uh, in a very connecting way. I think someone will watch this and say, I feel what this person is feeling. I want this person to be better. I'm glad that these people are together because it feels like they understand each other. So they, they're making all of the right choices, I guess, for an audience to be able to sympathize, to be able to empathize, and to, to want to see the story be carried out to a completion. Totally agree. And I, I wasn't even prepared for just how much screen time Shu had in this movie because I, I mean, we're talking about this just a moment ago. I knew this as the movie that won Nicolas Cage his Oscar. I, <laughs> if you, you had said asked that me. like 18 times this podcast. Already. I know. I'm, I know. I've said it too much. But if you had talked to me a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, describe Leaving Las Vegas, I wouldn't have said it's a movie where Elizabeth Shue was also nominated and where she broke through in a major way. I guess not a breakthrough. She was known because of the other movies she was in, but sort of had that critical breakthrough. I never knew that about her, and she probably has as much screen time as Cage. And strangely, this movie follows them. She honestly might have more. You're right. And this and the movie follows them as individuals quite a bit. They share a lot of scenes together, but we do see 
Ben's descent deeper and deeper into alcoholism, and we do see Sarah's attempts to carve out a living. Obviously, the life of a prostitute is not easy, and there's all kinds of things this movie introduces that you don't have to think about, like we don't normally have to think about, like the fact that she has to keep her job on the down low because she could get kicked out of her apartment if her landlords find out what she does for a living. Or she could get kicked out of casinos for just for walking in if they figure out that she's not there to gamble or have a drink. She's there to work. Uh, and so it's a, a really good two-hander as we follow these two characters and see the way that they start to spin down, not down the drain necessarily, but kind of as they fall in with each other, what they need from each other and how they lean on each other despite only meeting each other days um and spending maybe days together so yeah just such a such a couple of fascinating performances to watch uh, are there any particular scenes what whether with just with the two of them or with just one of them that stand out to you in your memory christian what is it there's a scene near the beginning and it's right before cage's character is being fired from his job so a secretary goes in to tell him that his boss wants to see him. And he like I, he takes her and starts dancing with her and she's very reluctant. And then lies and says that he has a meeting to go to. And she looks at him and says, you should go in and see him now. And it's that lie that is him trying to put off the inevitable... But it, it, it's also this understanding that he knows he's an alcoholic. He knows he's not going to change. It, it, it's the smallest cry for help or the smallest cry of, I know I'm messing everything up. And, and just that, I don't know, that line really resonates with me, especially now that I've seen the movie in its entirety. It also helps you understand how he gets to the suicidal point that he does because we we don't see any of his family in the in this movie outside of a photograph so we don't see there's no screaming matches between him and his wife there's no scenes where his son stumbles in on him drunk and incoherent we don't see that but we do see the way he loses his job and I think it's a good choice because it downplays some of the hysterics or the melodrama that could have come out of a story like this and also shows us just how far he's already fallen by the time the movie begins. The way that the people in his life, like that secretary, see him with pity and how uncomfortable he makes the people around him with his behavior. It really sets us up to understand just how deep this guy already is. Another scene that has been sitting with me since I watched it has Sarah and Ben together and about maybe halfway through the movie, a little bit later into the second half, they decide to take a trip out into the desert away from the strip in Vegas. They go to a little motel just to get away and they sort of have this almost will they won't they tension between the two of them. There's something romantic clearly there. They've shared a few kisses, but they have not consummated their relationship. They're sleeping in separate beds often. And, and so we're kind of wondering, will these two get together? And we see this moment where he, she's swimming in the pool. He is sitting on a chair. He, he brings out a couple of drinks for them. And she attempts to seduce him. She gets up out of the pool 
and starts to basically pour this bottle of liquor over her body and even like publicly disrobes so obviously not a movie to watch with kids in the room but publicly disrobes and they start to he she pours the liquor down her chest and he is drinking off of her and it's it's a very fascinating image because we see the ways that alcohol is obviously this like essentially the the destructive abusive love that ben has we see the ways that it has replaced sex in his life in some ways because early on in the relationship he picks her up to he he pays her to spend time with him basically and she tries to initiate a sex act and he says no like i'm (laughs) i don't want to do that and now in this moment he is more giving in to those advances now that obviously it's more consensual between the two of them and she's coming on to him and it's such a fascinating look at the uh, again that concept where like sex and alcohol are kind of combined for him in a destructive way and of course the moment is immediately or yeah it's immediately ruined because she says let's go back to the room she's hoping to take the next step and of course he stumbles falls and breaks a glass table that is was sitting next to the chairs outside and this not only causes him to get bloody and laugh off the moment and and ruin the vibe but the woman who runs the motel comes out and as they're cleaning it up she says you need to leave in the morning and it's this crushing reminder for sarah that ben is probably beyond saving and even this moment where they're so close in their connection to deepening their relationship it's interrupted and it's ruined by his struggle uh, it was hard to watch. It's moving, and, and despite, um, you know, obviously Ben being a complicated character, but just so well acted uh, between the two of them, of course, and really brings out what this bond is. Um, we see what each of them is trying to get from each other, or rather what Ben is not really trying very hard to get at all. But let, I, I will say this, though, because there are a ton of other scenes in this movie that are beautifully acted. And yeah, yes, I mean, I know that you had this in the show notes, it is shot on 16 millimeter and it looks beautiful. It looks gorgeous. Yeah, it's uh, part of that low budget, of course, meant they didn't have access to all the biggest, fanciest Hollywood cameras at the time. So Figgis opted to shoot on 16 millimeter as opposed to most movies in the time, which I, I believe were shooting on 35 millimeter. And so there is a sort of indie film look to this movie, despite the fact that big movie stars are at the center. I did not. I'm not really a fan of this movie though, and it's 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 almost nothing wrong with the movie itself. Just much more so that this movie is unrelentless in its pursuit of self decay and gives no breathing room. And, and and I don't I don't know how much you can fault a movie for that, but there I guess there are other films that I've really loved and enjoyed which are quite difficult to watch i really enjoy seven which is an awful awful murder basically horror-esque movie and i'm a big fan of grave of the fireflies which we've covered on this show despite how sad and and depressing it can be (laughs) yeah but this movie i i it's something does keep me back from it almost almost as though I, I need some, I don't know if it's hope or happiness or, or, or a thrill in, instead of just, just mis 
just miserableness that's that's enshrouding it all it's a hard movie to watch and i you know sometimes people use the phrase a one-timer to describe a movie they're only going to watch once and i know that you and i listen to a podcast that has referred to grave of the fireflies as a one-timer and we all have those movies this very well might be one for me just because like you said it it is a not a good time and the self-decay and destruction on display is really challenging to watch and I, I honestly can't fault you for kind of coming away from this movie unsure of your feelings, not wanting to watch it again, but not knowing if you feel like, you know, I know you said it's a good quality movie, but maybe not one you're personally a fan of. And I, I almost can't fault you for that because it is, you know, it's not condoning any of the behaviors in this movie, of course, but it is asking you to find some glimmer of humanity and maybe not hope, but at least humanity in these people. And I think we've talked about this on the show before, but I know Roger Ebert, one of the th phrases he's famous for sparking is that, you know, movies are often um, es essentially empathy machines. That's how some people conceive of them, you know, gives you an opportunity to see into a world that is not yours. So whether it's watching the experiences of a person who lives halfway around the world from you or seeing the experience of a, a different uh, you know, person of ethnic background in your own country, especially for us here in the States, you know, giving you a chance to empathize with that experience. And being able to empathize with a self-destructive alcoholic like Ben can be challenging. And I think if, you, if you're not able to fully connect with that as sort of the, the movie's reason for existing, then I totally understand a little bit of a hesitant reaction to it. But let, let me... Let me just ask you a question on this movie. How did you feel about the rape scene? Yeah, so we can mention uh, there is a scene where Sarah, in obviously an attempt to work, is ultimately uh, raped by this multiple clients who have brought her into their hotel room. Uh, very, very, very hard to watch. Um, I am with a crowd that sort of struggles with how movies tend to depict rape and in that obviously like sexual assault you it's a horrible thing and it's i don't know how you depict it at times in good conscience because you can sort of indicate what's happening i think they that figus holds back just enough that it didn't it didn't sink the movie for me but it is a very hard scene to watch especially in terms of the the sort of what happens in the plot after it because there are complications for Sarah past that scene. But I'm guessing you brought it up for a specific reason. So what, what were your thoughts on it? I'm not going to say necessarily that there's no reason for that scene to be there. It, 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 I, too, as awful as this sounds, I can understand it talking about the difficulties of sex workers and specifically with her character giving a, a deep asking you to form even more empathy for her but i will say we've we've already seen how difficult it is with her boss with all of the motels that are turning her away her and ben away with with her the man that she loves having already decided that he's going to succumb to alcoholism and asking her not to stop him. I don't know why on top of that, we also needed to see her get raped. Yeah, I, I think as as far as a story purpose goes, it 
like I said, there are complications from this in that she is injured and doesn't get home at the normal time. And I don't want to spoil what happens here. I know it's a lesser seen movie and want to encourage people if they're interested to watch it. So I won't spoil what happens because this is nearing the end of the movie. So I, I think there are story purposes that justify it. And to me, it seems it's sort of showing the ramping up of the trouble in her life where you mentioned her, her boyfriend who is her pimp who also mistreats her, but he is taken out of the picture by a certain point in the movie and she falls in with Ben who, although he's obviously um, not a healthy person, he cares for her and provides her companionship in a little bit of a healthier way because he wants to be her friend. Um, But we do see these escalating challenges in her life, be it trying to hide the reality of her occupation or trying to take care of Ben and he's not really able to reciprocate that or um, the example I was going to say is failing me. But so I sort of saw that as sort of the the climax for her of the consequences uh, from everything going on around her. It's obviously also not something that she chose. It's something that was done to her. And helps us to, again, further empathize with her uh, as we see her trying her best to carve out a way forward in this challenging life that she has. But it is a troubling scene. And I don't always know that it's justified to depict in movies. And so I I guess I have to leave it there. We we always talk about movies that needed to be like 20 minutes longer. This movie, in my mind, needed to be like 20 to 30 minutes shorter. And I would have still gotten the point. That's... I will say, though, those are those are all my thoughts on the movie. Yeah, so I guess ultimately, Christian, kind of star ratings aside, would you would you recommend leaving Las Vegas? It, is it a movie that you respect and say it's worth watching, or would you actually deter people from checking it out? Because unless they have a sincere interest in Cage's career or the Oscars or something like that. So it's not a movie that I would deter people from checking out, but I can't see myself ever throwing it out there as a recommendation. I, I totally understand with that. I, I think, obviously, with the subject matter, it's really hard to watch. And especially if you're somebody who has an alcoholic in your life, it I'm I'm sure it might be even harder at times if someone that you know and that you love has, has gone through this struggle. So absolutely understand that perspective. I think for me that it is a well-done enough movie. Not, And we've really spent a lot of time on the performances, which I don't have a ton of complaints here, but the filmmaking by Figus is pretty impressive too, not yes. just in the, the 16 millimeter, but he composed a lot of the music for the movie outside of using licensed tracks. He uh, <laughs> didn't get permits for the movie, so they're often shooting things in one take out on the strip because if they stayed any longer, the police could have been called because they weren't technically supposed to be there. There are definitely some risks taken and some. Uh, there is some beauty even to the way that movie is made. It's not always a straightforward narrative. There's some blending of time, some flashing back, flashing forward. It's all put together pretty beautifully, and so uh, really challenging subject matter for sure. And I would say know that going into it, because it's a hard and a sad watch, but ultimately one that it sounds like I might recommend a little more a little more strongly than you, Christian. Does that sound about right? Uh, probably, yeah. So that is Leaving Las Vegas. Unfortunately, it is not streaming. It was on Canopy when we were discussing it last week, but it is not there anymore. So go ahead and borrow it from the library or rent it, wherever you can rent movies, if this sounds like something you want to check out and you want to catch up after we have 
So, of course, Christian, that leaves us next week. We're going to be watching something that is definitely a little more enjoyable and a little more lighthearted, and that is Adaptation, which is, of course, Nick Cage's other Oscar nomination, but one that we have both seen. Are you a fan of this movie, Christian, or are you mad that I'm making you rewatch it? I was unimpressed by this movie the first time I saw it. Oh, how so, very interesting. I I knew that people were wild about it, and never never cared that much when i saw it so I'm, I'm interested to see what a rewatch will do ah yes the good news is that you record a podcast with somebody who is wild about it so i can't wait to come into this podcast a bubbling <laughs> fountain of energy next week just hoping and praying that you enjoyed it more as we look at adaptation that is on hbo max if you're looking to stream it and is widely available otherwise now of course we do have some uh, housekeeping to get to because we've been running a contest here on the cinema drip podcast you had an opportunity to win a trip to the movies on christian and myself and the way to win that enter and win that contest was by simply sending us the name of a movie which we gave a few hints as to what it might be and we have a winner Christian, can you give a drum roll into the mic? <laughs> no, I, I, I choose not to. Boo. Come on, Christian. Have fun. Hey, there it is. We got some claps. The winner is friend of the show, Braxton Cody. Congratulations, Braxton. You were the first one to submit the correct answer, which was, Christian? Scream 2. Scream 2, horror movie that was part of a franchise. And the sitcom star is, of course, Courtney Cox, who was on Friends while she was beginning the Scream franchise. So congrats to Braxton. We're going to email you back as uh, to tell you the way to redeem your prize, but are very excited at the chance to send you to the movies on us. Hopefully you can check out Doctor Strange and enjoy it more than Christian did, or you know see whatever whatever else is out there. There's all kinds of great movies in theaters right now. So thanks to everybody who entered. Shout out to Braxton, our ultimate winner. Also wanted to say shout out to... Uh, my friend, Matt Pastoria, new listener to the show for writing in, uh, he submitted a list of questions, actually, Christian, which I wasn't expecting. I was just saying he should send us an email, and, and so he did. But uh, I'm introducing a new segment to the show, uh, <laughs> Questions with Matt. So We Chris will not cover those right now. I've read this email. <laughs> we are not going to go through this right now. I know. I, I, I love Matt dearly. He is one of my best friends in this life. He was a groomsman in my wedding. And he has not always been a huge movie fan, but is starting to get more into it. So I appreciate you listening, Matt, and thank you for your questions. We'll, we'll find a way to address at least some of these on the show in the near future. A lot of thoughts about streaming and movies and theaters and how the industry can find a way forward, which isn't always what Christian and I cover on this show, but grateful for the chance to think about it regardless. So Matt and Braxton, thank you for your emails. We appreciate you guys listening along to the episodes and, of course, supporting the show. And there are a number of other ways that you can support the show as we continue to grow and reach new listeners. Number one, go ahead and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and a review if applicable. We sincerely appreciate it. My ego is very damaged and needs all the help it can get. And of course, we do love to shout out those reviews here on the show because we love to make sure our listeners are appreciated. So please do subscribe, rate, and review where you can. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter and Christian on Instagram. And we are both on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we're watching 
Or rather, if you're me, you are logging an entire month because you got really behind and didn't log anything from April. And so you submitted like 15 movie reviews all at once. Or if you're like Christian, you're a more rational and reasonable person who logs things as he goes. So good on you, Christian. Not so good on me. I'll be caught up one day. But we'd love to engage with you on whatever social media is your, uh, is your fave. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? Not right now, no. I will say, we actually would like to solicit your feedback for one thing I did fail to mention, our email, which is, of course, cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. As you've noticed, listeners, throughout 2022, we've been doing bonus episodes during the fourth week in every month, as opposed to a streaming recommendations episode, and we're thinking through some different options for Nicolas Cage, but would love to know if you have any Nick Cage movies or even movie series or franchises you'd like us to look at. We're considering doing a double episode on National Treasure and National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. We are considering a look at some of his 90s action movies or a Nicolas Cage-themed streaming recommendations episode and bringing it back. So we'd love to know your thoughts on what you would actually enjoy listening to. So go ahead and send that to cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. Or Ghost Rider and Ghost Rider 2. Or Ghost Rider and Ghost Rider 2. Also an option. I have not seen those movies and would love an excuse to. Now, that is finally all we have for the show. Christian already answered the question. Any further thoughts? He has none. So until next time, this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.